what I'm you know, curious to see about 2024 is do the parties sort of reorient themselves in any sort of way? Do they, do, you know, did they, they pick different candidates than, than, you know, Biden or Trump? And what would selecting those candidates do to um, the overall electoral map? And again, that, that matters not just for the 2024 presidential race, but it also could help determine, you know, what states are competitive for Senate this time um, and into the into the, the near future based on the, the changes we see, we see in, the, in, in the electorate. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong Whaley. And I'm Kyle Kondik, Managing Editor of Sabados Crystal Ball. Kyle, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. You released the initial Crystal Ball 2024 Senate ratings this week. With 34 Senate contests, Democrats are defending 23 seats. That includes three independents, while Republicans are defending just 11. I wonder if you can start by giving us an overview of the map and why, beyond just that basic math, Dems will be playing defense. Part of trying to figure out the Senate map is, is uh, you know, kind of going back and looking at what happened in previous elections. And so the Democrats really have not had a bad election on this particular Senate map since way back in 1994, almost 30 years ago. Um, that was the year where the uh, big Republican wave, they, they swept up the, the House and the Senate that year. But since then, the Democrats gained seats in 2000. They gained seats in 2006, flipping the Senate that year. Um, they netted a couple seats in 2012. Uh, and then they lost just a couple in in their 2018 midterm, and so they basically have built this huge advantage on this Senate map. Um, but once you have a big advantage, you actually have to you know you have to defend it every six years, and um, and and so the you know the Democrats have this are, are basically overextended. Um, also, you know, one other trend is just that that we've seen fewer and fewer states vote for different parties for president and for Senate. There are only five uh, states uh, or five senators out of the 100 who represent states that their party did not win for president. Um, Unfortunately for Democrats, all three of the uh, seats they hold in in states that Donald Trump won are on the ballot this year: uh, Ohio, Montana, and West Virginia. Um, and you know they're defending just a fifty-one forty-nine overall majority. And uh, so beyond those, you know, you've got those three seats. You've got several others that are that are uh, going to be challenging for Democrats to hold. Meanwhile, the Republicans aren't really defending much at all in terms of difficult seats in this uh, in this Senate cycle. So. Um, you know, it just we, we've sort of known that this was looming um, in, in you know in the background for Democrats in the Senate, and you know now it's here, and um, you know it's 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 going to be difficult um, for Democrats to defend their Senate majority. But you know the Republicans have to actually translate that potential into reality, something they've had trouble doing uh, in, in in some recent elections, um, most recently last year. So Kyle, let's dig a little bit deeper into those three states you mentioned that Trump won that Democrats will be defending Ohio, Montana, and West Virginia. And let's start with West Virginia. It's fairly unusual for you to do this, but you've started West Virginia out as leans Republican. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about this decision. Yeah, usually, um, you know, these initial ratings will give incumbents and almost most of, of any stripes sort of the benefit of the doubt. We wouldn't call them anything worse than a toss up. But um, we made an exception this time uh, in, in part because West Virginia and Joe Manchin, they're such outliers as to where American politics are right now. Um, Donald Trump won uh, West Virginia by about 40 points both times. Uh, and, um, it, you know, the, the, you know, the other two uh, Trump states that Democrats hold, uh, Trump's margins were much 
much smaller in those states. Um, and even even the the, the the couple of Republicans in uh, buying one seats are much more competitive than West Virginia is. Um, we've seen over time that West Virginia became Republican at the presidential level, and then um, the party's uh, impressive strength uh, in in the state at the state the state house level, its statewide executive offices, you know, that's all faded away. Manchin's the only one left, um, and uh, you know his, his approval ratings are not that great at this point. Um, and so you just put all this together, and I just think it's going to be hard for Manchin to win. There's also the possibility that he just doesn't even run for re-election at all. Um, you know, in which case this would be a pretty safe Republican um, pickup. So um, yeah, it's unusual for us to do this to start incumbent as an underdog, but uh, again, we thought it was warranted um, just given how much of an outlier um, West Virginia is at the at the Senate level, and also if you look at the congressional district level, you know there aren't any Democrats who hold you know Trump plus forty districts. There aren't any Republicans who hold Biden plus forty districts. You know it's just um, Mansion really sticks out, and in a in a presidential year, he's going to need to you know do you know thirty five forty points better probably than the Democratic presidential candidate does, and that just seems like such a heavy lift these days. So let's move on to the other two seats, Sherrod Brown in your home state of Ohio and John Tester in Montana. As of now, both of those states are also Republican at the presidential level, but they are more competitive than West Virginia. Which candidates do you see emerging to challenge John Tester um, and Sherrod Brown, who has announced that he will be running for another term. Yeah, uh, both you know, both Brown and Tester. Uh, Brown has already announced he's running for a fourth term. Uh, Tester uh, won in 2006, so he would also be running for a fourth term. Um, he hasn't yet uh, made clear whether he's running or not. Um, it, it, you know, the the uh, we'll see how strong the candidates are um, in both states. Uh, you know, one of the possible challengers for testers, Matt Rosendale, who's a House member. Um, Rosendale was one of the kind of very public holdouts on supporting Kevin McCarthy in the recent uh, speaker um, vote on the Republican side. Um, you also have, an, and, and, and Tester beat Rosendale in uh, 2018. Um, Ryan Zinke, a House member, former Secretary of the Interior under Donald Trump, had kind of a checkered tenure there. Um, had a kind of a harder than expected house race in twenty in uh, twenty twenty two. Um, you know, either of them could beat Tester, but I wouldn't say that either of them are kind of like top tier challengers. Um, in Ohio, uh, state senator by Matt Dolan, by the name of Matt Dolan, um, who ran in tw the twenty twenty two primary, did okay for himself. He's running. Secretary of State Frank LaRose could run. There are a number of other folks. Um, you know, again, unclear as to how strong the candidates are going to be, but um, you know, both Tester and Brown are going to need to probably have some distance between them and the Democratic presidential nominee, perhaps a lot of distance. Um, and that's just, you know, it's sort of an open question as to whether they can do that or not. And, you know, that's why we're starting these races as, as toss-ups. Again, we think they're in a little bit different of a category than West Virginia, you know, we're sort of um, uh, noting um, West Virginia is, is, is clearly the most vulnerable Democratic held Senate seat, but there are other vulnerable ones too, uh, most notably Ohio and Montana. Okay. Well, since we got to talk a little bit about your home state of Ohio, I thought I might interject a little bit and talk a little bit about my home state of California. Um, Senator Dianne Feinstein has served for three decades. She has not yet announced her retirement, but the contest to succeed her is already shaping up, and it looks like that may be a pretty bitter one. Um, as of now, Representative Katie Porter, um, she is, of course, the whiteboard 
wielding progressive congresswoman, uh, was the first to officially declare her candidacy. And Barbara Lee, uh, who represents Oakland, um, she is an ardent uh, anti-war activist um, and has reportedly told colleagues that she is going to run. Meanwhile, uh, Adam Schiff um, has reportedly also begun preparing for, uh, for a run, as has Silicon Valley Congressman Ro Khanna. Um, with California's open primary system, it's possible and uh, even likely that we're going to see two Democrats facing off in the 2024 Senate race there. Um, but until then, um, we're likely to see a protracted and probably very expensive uh, couple of years of campaigning here. One, one thing to add just about California real quick is that, um, you know, you've got these various House members, many of you know, some of them were kind of famous nationally. Um, you know, they, uh, uh, they, they do have some, you know, national fundraising ability and, and name recognition. But in terms of California, you know, there are 52 house districts in that state. So they each represent only 152nd of the state. Um, U.S. house districts in California are actually smaller than state Senate seats. So it just gives you a sense as to, um, you know, how, how uh, hard I think it is to kind of generate statewide name ID in, in, a, in, a, in a place like California. So um, and, you know, we could very well see, you know, two Democrats end up in the in the general election. Um, you know, one wrinkle there though is that it's possible that California would host a um, competitive uh, presidential primary on the Republican side, but not the Democratic side, depending on how things shake out. Um, so maybe the Republican turnout in the primary be better, and um, maybe that's a, that ends up being helpful to the Republicans to get a candidate through. But um, but you know, beyond that, um, you know, more a more competitive state, Arizona, um, you're probably going to have a three way race there. Although Kristen Cinema, uh, independent senator uh, who uh, um, you know, used to be a Democrat, still caucuses with the Democrats, she may or may not run for election. Ruben Gallego, House member, Democrat, uh, got in the race recently. Um, he's a you know perfectly credible uh, Democratic candidate, although certainly positioned to the left of, of cinema now. And, and also, I think when cinema first got elected in 2018, uh, potentially also to uh, Mark Kelly, the other Democratic senator from um, that state. You know, on the Republican side, they've had uh, some candidate selection problems recently, most notably in 2022. Um, you know, they're probably going to have um, someone who can generally consolidate the Republican vote. And so the, the worry for Democrats is that um, they may end they might end up, uh, um, you know, having cinema cut away a little Democratic vote, which would allow the Republican to win. But um, at this point, Arizona is a toss up with uh, probably more kind of moving pieces than any other state um, that we're talking about. So Crystal Ball discussed Michigan in depth um, when Senator Stabenow retired, and we'll link to we'll we'll put a link in the show notes to the January 9th Crystal Ball piece. Um, and and so that contest in Michigan leans Democratic, even though it's going to be an open seat in a swing state. Who do you see emerging on the Democratic side um, to fill that seat? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that the um, probably the the person. Who's most uh, prominent? Who seems to be closest to running is Alyssa Slotkin, House member. Um, she represents Swing District. Um, used to be kind of closer to the Detroit suburbs. Is now sort of more centered on Lansing, the state capital. Um, but uh, I think Slotkin to be a you know a pretty decent candidate. But she might have company in the primary from other potentially strong candidates. Jocelyn Benson, the 
Michigan Secretary of State uh, may or may not be considering the race. Garland Gilchrist, Lieutenant Governor. There may be other House members who decide to do it. Um, the Republican side a little bit, um, a little bit hazier. I think in part because um, the Republican bench in that state is not quite as strong. Um, Democrats have done really well in Michigan in the past two cycles, and um, that that has a way of sort of replenishing a, a, a party's bench. But um, you know, depending on who the nominee is on the Republican side, Michigan is certainly a competitive enough state that that a Republican could win a Senate race there, particularly if the state's voting Republican for president. Um, I do still see sort of a small Republican Democratic lean in that state. Um, and Democrats have also won 15 of the last 16 uh, Senate elections in Michigan going back to the 70s. Um, that's no guarantee that they're going to do it again in 2024, but um, there are some obstacles to Republicans in that state. But you know, it is, it is a more attractive target now that it's an open seat as opposed to Senator Stabenow running for re-election. So you've noted that nearly all of the 11 seats Republicans are defending are going to be in the safe category. Um, two that you've rated as likely Republican are Florida and Texas. Um, are those at all plausible Democratic targets? And who might who might we see running and, and how would they achieve it there? Uh, you know, I think it's it, it's probably too soon to say, um, but I think you would need a combination of a good Democratic environment. Uh, and, and a really strong Democratic challenger in those states, um, who that person might be, you know, remain, it remains sort of an open question. I think that you might have some, you know, some House members in in, in both states who, who maybe might might uh, consider doing it. But um, one challenge for Florida and Texas is just that they're, you know, they're, they're Texas is the second largest state by population. Florida is the third largest. They all have big media markets. It's very expensive to run the kind of like statewide advertising campaign that you, you maybe would need to, 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 to really compete in, 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 you know, for, for a Senate seat. Uh, and, and, you know, the outside democratic groups, um, a lot of those groups sort of the, you know, the, the, the main ones, democratic senatorial campaign committee and Senate majority pack, um, they tend to focus more on incumbent protection and there's a ton of incumbents, the democratic side to protect. So whoever gets in, if they're going to be a credible candidate, they're need to get, they're going to need to demonstrate a lot of, fundraising strength on their own. Um, I guess the good thing, at least for the Democrat, particularly in Texas, is that running against Ted Cruz will probably open a lot of wallets, I would think. Um, so, you know, the, the, there might be, uh, um, you know, some small dollar fundraising potential for whoever the candidate ends up being. But, you know, totally, I'd, I'd say it's, you know, it's an uphill um, uphill battle for Democrats in both those states. And then the nine other seats being contested, um, including two in Nebraska, um, but it's like, you know, Indiana, you know, Missouri, North Dakota, you know, Democrats used to hold those seats, but they're just not particularly competitive now. So um, this map is really defined by Democrats playing a whole lot of defense and Republicans not having to play much defense at all. So Kyle, you noted earlier in our interview and also write about that the Senate maps being better aligned with presidential results. So I want to ask, how should the parties be thinking about presidential candidate vulnerabilities and presidential candidate selection? You know, it's, it's interesting that, that, you know, we're at an era where, you know, a generation or two ago, these senators might have uh, their own kind of independent brands. They would be able to run far away from their um, respective parties, presidential candidates, a lot more tickets splitting going on. You know, these days, I think that, you know, the, the, the presidential candidate selection, it doesn't just guide um, the presidential race. It also kind of helps reposition the, the, the two parties and it has sort of cascading effects on how people perceive the parties and, um, you know, helping or hurting certain candidates depending on what sort of political realignment is going on. And so, you know, for, I mean, 
for 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 both uh, for good and bad in terms of results, you know, Donald Trump did sort of reconfigure the Republican Party and um, you know attracted a lot of voters and also pushed a lot of voters away. Um, what I'm you know curious to see about 2024 is do the parties sort of reorient themselves in any sort of way? Do they do, you know did they they pick different candidates than than you know Biden or Trump? And what would selecting those candidates do to um, the overall electoral map? And again, that that matters not just for the 2024 presidential race, but it also could help determine, you know, what states are competitive for Senate this time um, and into the into the the near future, based on the, the changes we see um, we see in the in, in the electorate. I mean, the, the the House and the Senate results are you know more correlated with the presidential results than they have been at least in many decades. Um, and so again, the, the, the choices the parties make for president, it's not just about the presidential race, but it's about, you know, kind of everything. Um, and so we'll see if that changes in 2024, or if we'll just see sort of a continuation of some of the trends we saw in um, 16 and 20. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faze. Please support us by rating and subscribing to Politics is Everything wherever you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the Center for Politics on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. Until next time.